Well, hello, everyone, and we are ready for Philippians chapter 3. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for this Bible study. And Father, it might be coming through in a different way as far as on podcast instead of in person. But Father, we are thankful that you've given us so many different ways to make sure that your word is getting out no matter what the circumstances. So we praise you. We give you glory for this opportunity again today as we go into this letter to the Philippians. Lord, that's such a great instruction. May we really concentrate and hear what you've got for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this is my Bible. I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true, and it is all that I need. Absolutely. All right, now, last week we were in Philippians 2, and I do this because I love the flow of a letter. And this is a letter. And so just to make sure that we don't miss anything as we go into this third chapter, let's just kind of remember that last in last week in Philippians 2, he kind of put it in three sections. And the first section was just stop and think. Take the time and realize just realize all what you have. When he says, aren't you encouraged? Aren't you encouraged with the fact that that we are all the same and that we're united in Christ? We all come to the cross the same way. So there's not one of us that's better or worse. We're united because we all need Christ in the same degree. We're all lost. No one's more lost than another. I think you understand that concept. If you're lost, you're lost. And so this is just Paul saying, aren't you so encouraged by the fact that you don't have to compare yourself to anyone else? We all have salvation through one in Christ. And then he says, and then how about, how about it? He says, do you take, do you take comfort? Isn't that such a comfort to you to know that, that he loves you and that, that this love is endless. It's limitless. It's ongoing. I don't know what word you want, but his love continues. Don't you take comfort that even though we might make a mistake or we we veer off course and we go down the path of self and we all do that, don't you take comfort in the fact that, that he's not there saying, well, I, I don't love you as much today because of how you acted. And that is so comforting to know that his love, in fact, he just lavishes, Paul says, he lavishes his love and his grace on us. And then he says, and then what about the fact that you have fellowship, that you actually can have a relationship, you can have fellowship with an almighty God, and that's possible through his his spirit, his spirit lives within us. On the second of our salvation, we're given this gift of his Holy Spirit, which now introduces us to a real relationship that has to work both ways. He will always do his part. We have God's word, we have his spirit, but we have to do our part by making sure that we stay in God's word and that we're listening to his Holy Spirit instead of listening to ourselves. And he says, just 
think about that, that you and I, we can have fellowship with God through his spirit. And then, and then when he says, and make my joy complete, make my joy complete, I want to know that you as a church of Philippi, that you are getting along, that, that, that no one, that you're like-minded, that you're, you're in one purpose, that you're all, you all want souls saved. You all want, the, you all want saved souls to now grow and mature, that you have one goal in mind, that you're, that you're under, that you're like-minded, that you're being one in spirit, one in purpose, and that you're constantly checking your motive, that you're not doing things out of, that you're not doing your good deeds out of, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Always check that, that the reason why you're doing something is not for your own, well, for your own glorification. Because remember, once we've been to the cross, it's not about us anymore. It's about him. But we always have to check that motive. And then he says, I, I want you in humility. We should stay humble. There was no one more humble than Jesus. And Paul goes on in the verses to say, he is the one to feed. And he, he's equal Godhead. And he considered that nothing to, to grasp at. He, he didn't consider equality with God something to grasp. He was willing to listen to the Father's plan and being willing to be the, the one who would fulfill that plan. I mean, that's humbling. Remember last week, we listed many things of why he's humbled himself. He humbled not only to the cross, but he humbled himself in the way he was born as a baby in, in a manger um, from simple people um, that they lived in a simple town. And, and we listed all those last week. But he said, we are to have that attitude of Christ. And then, and then he said, look at the reward. The reward is that God exalted him. See, if we live a humble life here, and we live our life for him, I mean, sometimes, maybe in the world's eyes, you know, we don't achieve, you know, what the world calls success or whatever. But if we humble ourselves, and we're listening to God's spirit, and we're being obedient to his word, when we live a life the way Christ wants us to live, he said, it is going to be worth it. Jesus received the name above all names, the name that everyone will bow to and confess that he is Lord. But the fact that we will have rewards, that, that someday we're, we're really going to look at all our rewards for living for Christ, and we're going to say, and that's all I had to go through? I mean, what we're having to go through now that we think it's so astronomical and our, and our suffering is so great, that when we compare it to what we receive in glory, it's not going to compare at all. So Paul says, have you been thinking about that? Because that really helps in how you live, how you treat people, what your attitude is. We know that attitude affects everything about us. And then, and then he says, 
work that out, live that out. Don't just learn all this and, and then just sit on it, but live out, work out your salvation. Let others see you. In fact, he gave the illustration, shine like a star in the night. And that was such a beautiful illustration. And he said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that's not in scared to death, fear and trembling. It's with awe. In fact, we should just be almost spellbound. We should just be in awe that, that we have a Savior and that he now claims us as his own and, and that we will have all these benefits and we have abundant life and we can just go on and on. And He said, just be in awe that that's available to us when we did nothing to deserve it. And then he, he goes on in, in the third part. I mean, the first part is, when was the last time you really thought about all that you have because of what Christ has done? The second part is, as you have responded and said yes to this salvation, now what are you doing with it? Are you working it out? Are you being a testimony, a witness? Are you shining like a star? And then in the third part, he says, uh, and then he gave us two examples of two people, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And these two men, now we know that Timothy took over for Paul, but as far as personality-wise, he was just the opposite of Paul. He was very quiet and timid and and yet, he had a beautiful heart. And that's why I think using these two people, Paul is saying, I don't care who is reading or listening to Philippians 2, you don't have an excuse saying, well, this doesn't apply to me. I mean, we see a very quiet personality, and yet Paul is saying, I never met anyone like him because he's real. His heart, because his mom and his grandma just taught him so much about Jesus and his life was transformed, he might not be, you know, a type A personality, but he's so real, he's so tender. He has such an interest for people and their souls. And then he uses the example of Aphrodites because, you know, he's not really popular as far as we don't read about him a lot. But boy, he really was special to Paul. In fact, I mean, everybody loved him, and that's why when he got really sick to the point almost of dying, he was, he was willing to do and give whatever it takes for the gospel. And Paul even admitted that, that he almost died, but, but God in his mercy, not only for Epaphroditus, so that he could be used more, but Paul said, it was for me too, because I needed him. I think when Paul used the words that, that I, I'm glad and that, that God did this so that I may be less, have less anxiety, I think Paul is so admitting that he's human. And that, yes, even though he's Paul, the apostle, 
he still battles that human nature. And when Epaphroditus was so ill, he thought, oh dear, what am I going to do without him? But how the Lord just helped Paul to understand, well, by keeping Epaphroditus alive, but, but I think Paul also learned a very valuable lesson in trust because next week when we do the last chapter of Philippians 4, Paul says, be anxious for nothing. I think Paul is saying here, I'm having to learn just like all of you. We're having to learn how to fight our own self and our, our, our own emotions, and they want to take over and blind us from what we know about the promises of Jesus and what his word tells us. So I think in that last part, Paul is just saying, no, we all have the same opportunities. We all, we all go through difficult times. We all have a choice to make when difficult times come. Are we going to get anxious and worry and just kind of keep God out of it? Or are we going to say, we believe your will is perfect and you have a reason for everything you do. I know I keep a bookmark in Isaiah 43 and sometimes when I just do not understand God's will and his ways, I mean, we've been warned that we won't always remember or that we won't always understand God's ways. In fact, it will probably sometimes it'll be the absolute the opposite of what we wanted. And yet, my Bible will fall open to Isaiah 43. When, the, when Isaiah writes what the Lord says, this is what the Lord says, that I've formed you, I've created you. No one knows you better than the Lord. He summoned you by name. We belong to him. And then he goes on to say, when, not maybe, not if, but when you go through the waters or the rivers or the fire, the water will not, will not overcome you. The fire will not burn you because I am your Savior. Circumstances might not change, but you can because you can have the assurance that God is up to something no matter what. But that is a, that is, that's where the, the fight begins because in all of our natural humanity, we want to know why and we want it our way and we're just constantly battling that. And yet, listening to the Holy Spirit remind us that God is perfect and that his love for us is endless and that his plans for us he's got reasons and are we going to trust him or not well now as we move into chapter 3 Paul starts with the word finally my brothers rejoice in the Lord I don't think that finally means well, I'm almost done. I think here, because we're just in the middle of the letter. And so when he says, finally, I think he's saying, I've got more to say. Finally, my brothers, now on this subject, 
Rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Paul knows that he's going to be saying the similar principle over and over in this letter. And he says, you just better get used to it. Because we need to hear it over and over that we are to rejoice in the Lord. Next week we'll hear him say rejoice in the Lord always. Because again, remember, rejoice is not re-happy. We're not always going to be happy about God's will and his plan. But we can be joyful And again, separate that from happiness because joy is our relationship with Jesus. Joy is not something. Joy is someone. And we can rejoice in the Lord because he is who he is. And that's why Paul last week said, think about all what he's done for you and what you have because of him and who you are because of him. And that should be the prime. Rejoice in the Lord. He said, I have no trouble saying that again because it is your safeguard. What does that mean? When you rejoice in the Lord, when you wait on the Lord, when you trust in the Lord, when your mind goes back to the Lord, when your eyes go on the Lord instead of your problem, Paul said, that's your safeguard. Because what do you and I need to be guarded from? Falling into our own self. Falling into that worry. Pushing God out, thinking that there is n- there's no hope. When Paul himself says that rejoice when trials of any kind come your way. Because it will produce perseverance. Perseverance will produce character and character hope. These are things Paul says, I'm not a bit ashamed to keep repeating. Because when you hear it over and over, it will safeguard you from going down the road that will lead you to down and defeat and just discouragement, despair, depression. And you have pushed Jesus right out of the way. You've you've plucked your ear to what the Holy Spirit wants to remind you of, what you have learned. So Paul says, I want you to rejoice in the Lord because no one or nothing can take away him from you. And we should be so thrilled about this grace unconditional love relationship that we have with an almighty God and that we are saved from our sin and our self and judgment and hell. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Think of what you would be without him. I always say, if we really understood our salvation and joy would just come from us, what a different perspective Christians would have on their lives, on the condition of the world. Because they have hope. In every circumstance, there's hope in Jesus. We know who wins. We've been given how it's all going to turn out. 
We've even been told how our forever is going to be. And yet we get so worked up about our, our mist of life that's here today and gone tomorrow. Paul is trying to say to this church, to you and I, do you realize? Do you realize? And, and I want to keep it forefront in your mind so it will safeguard you from all those negatives, all those negativities that want to bring you down and maybe take a smile off your face, take the joy out of your heart that will take the purpose away from your walk and the reason why you get up in the morning. He said, rejoice in the Lord. He's given you blessed assurance. Jesus is yours today and tomorrow and forever. And then he gives a warning. He says, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. He gives, he gives a warning. And you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, he's having to now warn us from people who are, well, that we know are evil. He is pretty much saying, watch out for those deceitful, well, remember, remember how I called them unsafe Christians? Either they're unsaved Christians, they're playing the game and they're really not even saved, they're very religious. Maybe they're, maybe they're saved, but they're not growing in the Lord and they're just, they're not listening to the Spirit and they're, they're just, well, they're spiritually cocky. They just think they, they know everything and have everything and they don't take the time to study they're certainly not humble before the Lord. No, they're, they're smart Alex. And he says, you watch out for them. In fact, he called them those dogs, those men who do evil. I mean, it's people that come at us. And the thing is, if we are now working at keeping our life right with the Lord, that means staying in his word every day, making a conscientious effort and priority in our lives, then we're going to start, when people like that infiltrate and they come up with all the latest fads or the new theories, they exaggerate the importance of things that don't matter, legalistic. If we're not grounded in God's word, if we're not listening to the Spirit's voice, it's so easy because they sound so smart. See, there's such a difference in smart than true wisdom. I watch simple fishermen and tax collector and all those, those disciples turn into unbelievable apostles that had enormous wisdom. They, say, they sat at the feet of Jesus and learned it. Are we taking the time to sit at the feet of Jesus and learning this so that when, when these smart alecks come at us, 
I mean, it's, it's so unfortunate, but yet I'm so glad Paul calls them the names he does to make us sit up and take notice. What, what he was talking about when he called them those mutilators of the flesh. Oh, they came in so bossy, and they came into the Gentile churches, and they said, oh, you, you need to be circumcised to be a believer. You need circumcision for salvation. They were adding to Jesus, and we know we need no one or nothing but Jesus. But they started putting all these requirements on. In fact, they basically were saying, you must become a Jew before you can become a Christian. And when you have a young church, or when you've got new Christians, and you've got these smart alecks coming at you, and they're acting so, so self-confident. If you are not so confident in his word and in the Lord Jesus, you will watch yourself just get swallowed up by people like this. We have to stay in step with, with Jesus and his word so that that Holy Spirit can help us recall and we can come back and say, that is not true. We need no one or nothing but Jesus to be saved. What true circumcision is, because Paul says, for it is we who are the circumcision. Now granted, Paul was a Jew, but he's saying to the Philippian church, the circumcision that we're talking about that we all need is the cutting away of that old self. Because when he said, for it is we who are, who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God. We worship by his Spirit. His Spirit reveals to us Jesus, and then we want to praise him for who he is. It's not self-emotion. It's the Spirit of God that makes us pray. Praise, because it's the Spirit of God that reveals the truth of Christ in us. And then he says, Who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Paul is just trying to say we've got to cut away self so that our worship is real. That we're rejoicing in Christ Jesus alone. And that we are trusting him and not our own ability. There's a song out right now by Zach Williams. I just love it when I hear it because this is so my soapbox. I just want everybody who listens to me to realize that self is so pathetic. Self is so pitiful. That we in and of ourselves are nothing. Now, I don't walk around, oh, such a worm as I, because I have been transformed. I've been saved by the blood, and I've been transformed by the Spirit. 
And the more I get to know my Savior, the more I walk in, in, this, in step with the Spirit, the more I study, the more I'm finding that I see less and less of Linnell and more and more of Jesus. And I got to tell you, I am thrilled about that. And in this song, Zach says words like this, a little more like Jesus, a little less like me. He wrote that song because to him, that's a goal for him. I want to be a little bit more every day like Jesus and a little less like myself. I want to see less and less of my old nature. Because remember, and I know I repeat myself here, but I'm not ashamed to say it. He did not take old and is now making old better. He is making us brand new. There's nothing of our old nature that could be redeemed. No, he has made us new. All things are gone. Behold, all things have become new. I have been crucified. I, myself, been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live. It's Christ that lives in me. This is from the same mouth, from the same words of the man that we're studying who's writing this letter. He found out, and he wants us to not miss it. And then he goes on to say, he doesn't want any of us to put any confidence in the flesh, which would mean self-confidence. And he's going to go now to describe it. He says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. He's basically being honest again and open and saying, boy, was I off the track. Was my way of thinking ever wrong? I thought I needed all these things to make me a somebody. I even thought I needed all these things for God's approval. He said, so I worked, I, 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 I worked so hard. He said, I, I looked at myself and I thought, oh, good. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Oh, good, I can check that off. We did that right. Thank you, Mom and Dad, for making sure that I was circumcised on the eighth day. Oh, I'm so glad that I am from the people of Israel. That I come from the nation that Abraham started and Isaac and Jacob. I am so glad that I belong to the people of Israel and that I am a part of the tribe of Benjamin. See, there was only two tribes in the kingdom of Judah. When, when Israel separated into two kingdoms, there was ten tribes to the kingdom of Israel, and there was only two tribes in the kingdom of Judah. And both of those were very good to belong to. We know that the tribe of Judah is the line that Jesus came from. But also, 
the tribe of Benjamin was also a very important territory in the kingdom of Judah because it's where the city of Jerusalem was. The tribe, the, the, the city of Jerusalem, all of its boundaries were in the tribe of Benjamin. And this was all part of Paul's thinking. You know, you can almost see him breaking his arm, patting himself on the back, thinking he was really something. And then he said, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was very proud in the, in the wrong sense of pride. He was very proud to walk around saying, I am a Jew. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. You could almost, as Paul is saying this, you could almost see, as he said to everyone, he thought at the time, before his conversion, he thought how God must be so pleased with me. I am really special. I am so religious. We have checked all the boxes. He even studied hard. He was a Pharisee. He he was zealous, which we know because he was on his way to get rid of the Christians when he was going to Damascus. So he thought, I mean, look, you can be zealously wrong. Zealous. He was committed. He was headstrong. He was going after it. He was not swayed. He was zealous. And then he said, as for legalistic righteousness, see, legalistic righteousness is when you are trying to make yourself so right. When true righteousness is only made by Christ and his sacrifice. You and I can call ourselves righteous because of Christ and him alone. And Paul is saying legalistic righteousness. Oh, I was doing everything right. He said, in fact, faultless. Now that is quite a background. That is, that is a lot of impressiveness. If somebody were looking at his resume. The thing is, he checked all the bro- right boxes except for the ultimate one. But fortunately, when Jesus got him on the road to Damascus, and after three days of being blind physically, he opened those eyes to not only have them open physically, but he saw spiritually. And he saw that none of those attributes amounted to anything comparing that to what Christ did for him. I think the whole picture of, of Paul being knocked to the ground is kind of like 
what every one of us need. Maybe not always literally, but spiritually, if you've been raised in religion, there's got to be a moment where Jesus knocks us down and we realize that no matter how hard we've tried to attain all these good things, there's nothing that can make that can make us new and righteous and saved until we humbly come to Christ. That's why in verse 7, but whatever was to my profit. Because I'm sure he gained a lot of respect. I'm sure people had him on quite the pedestal. Because for people looking on, they looked at all of who Paul was and what he achieved. And he had made quite the name for himself in the religious realm. And Paul says, look, whatever was to my prophet, whatever I gained, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I think this is why Paul said to us last week, don't you just take encouragement in the fact that no matter, no matter who you are or who you aren't, and you wish you were, and now we can be so down on ourselves, or whether we can think of us as quite something. So whether it's haughtiness, or whether it's just worthlessness, Paul said we all come to the cross the same. He said, so no matter what I did, no matter how much and how hard I worked, at trying to be so good and be so religious. All I really need was Jesus because he's the only one that could save me. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we aren't to make something of ourselves, but it's a whole different reason why. We're trying to make something of ourselves, not, not really for ourselves. We're trying to make something for the kingdom of God. Our life has purpose for God's kingdom. And that's what Paul is saying. Because, because of what Jesus has done, you want to become the best you can be. So that the gifts that he's given you, you can utilize for God's kingdom. But I also think that that's why he picked the 12 that he picked. Why he prayed all night to ask his father, what 12 should I pick? To be with me every day for three years. And then to be the ones that I will send out to bring the gospel to the whole world. Quite a contrast to Paul, who we will see that the Lord used so many of his attributes after his salvation, but it was for Christ's glory, not Paul's. See, it's really quite simple. Paul is saying, who are you living for? 
what, why, all the what, why, all those questions. What are you living for? Why do you work so hard at this? Or, I mean, whatever question, the answer has got to always be, and our what's, our why's, it ought to always be the same answer. It's the least I can do. And that's what Paul says. So whatever was to my profit, then I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything. He said, just in case you're not understanding this. I'm, I'm going over this whole list again. And he says, there is a one that I want to keep. Because none of them, they all maybe helped me become who I am. I mean, I think of some of, I look back in my life and I'm very fortunate to, been, to have been raised in a Christian home. I was very fortunate to be able to sing on a program called Children's Bible Hour. I was very fortunate to go to church and Sunday school and youth group and Christian school. I consider all of them, oh, I'm grateful for all of them, but the thing is, I think I understand what Paul meant. I'll go back over my list, and they all might have had a part in leading me too, but there isn't one thing on Paul's list, there's nothing on my list that I can say saved me. Only when I came to Christ and his cross. So Paul says, I just need you all to stop working so hard at trying to achieve in the world's eyes. And what should really matter to you is that you just throw up your hands and you surrender it all to the one who gave his all for you. Because Paul is not saying that this is horrible. In fact, he's trying to say it's going to be the best thing that you've ever done. That's why on our salvation day, it starts as the worst day because all of a sudden we are just realizing that everything that we thought we were that made us so good, really not so good. But Jesus never leaves us there. Paul doesn't leave us there. He's saying, look what exchange you get. Look what you get in replacement. He says, what does Mark consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things? You know, he did that spiritually, but Paul lost a lot for the sake of Christ. He was willing. I consider them rubbish. That's what he calls it. Paul's foundation is what Jesus did for him. That's his foundation. Paul says, it's what Jesus did for me, not what I did for him. That's the bottom line.
all gets it. Real understanding, real knowledge, real knowing is when you realize it's what Jesus did for me, not for what I did for him. And he says, I consider all that rubbish. And I looked up that word, and, and in the connotation that Paul wrote it, I mean, it's not just something that's worthless. It's offensive. So when Paul wrote the word rubbish, it wasn't just something that you toss out, but it is something that is very offensive. Inner, inner, anything other than salvation in Christ Jesus is rubbish. It's worthless, and it's offensive. And he says that, and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law. It's like you can almost hear Paul saying, and I've been there. I tried that. But righteousness did not come from me being legalistic righteous. Because that was me doing it. But my righteousness has come through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Faith is being sure. The writer of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, he made it very clear that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Faith is simply choosing to believe even though you can't see it. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to know. I want to know Christ. What does that mean? I want to know Christ. And I don't think it's just about. I want to know him. I want an intimate relationship with him. I want to know the ins and outs. I don't just want a bunch of intellectual, historical facts. They're important, I, I know, but I don't think when Paul says, I want to know Christ, he's just not saying, I want to be smart in historical facts and in correct doctrine. I want to know him personally and intimately. That, well, it's like what Jesus said in John. You remain in me, and I remain in you. And you will bear much fruit. I want to make my life count. I want my life to matter. Not for what I've gained in the world's eyes. But what I gained for the kingdom of God. And when I stand in front of Jesus someday, I want to know him.
and I want to know the power of his resurrection. Boy, did I like thinking about that one. What is the power of his resurrection? Because that 10th verse, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want that evidencing power. I want, I want to know that everything Jesus said and everything he did was true, and I am experiencing the evidence. The evidence in my life. That's why Paul says that he's able to do immeasurably more in me than what I can ever imagine or think. Because when the Holy Spirit works and then in our heart and life and then we live out our salvation, the evidence of the power of God coming out of us. And what about it's not, there's not just evidence. There's power. There's justifying power. Justifying power means that that the sacrifice, his sacrifice on the cross, it was accepted as payment in full. In other words, I've been justified. That the power of the resurrection proves that the that the cross worked, that the sacrifice was accepted. The power of the resurrection also shows me that I have life-giving power. I have life-giving power. I don't have to retreat into my nothingness. Because of the power of the resurrection, I know that that same power that raised Jesus from the dead is going to raise me and raise you. To me, that's not only life-giving power, but it's comforting power. Because I can think of my friends and my loved ones who've gone who've gone on before, that they're actually living with him. So when Paul says, I want to know Christ, that's just not facts. It's intimate relationship that does take work. Any healthy relationship takes work from both sides. I want to know him better. I want to work at this so that I know him better. And I want the power of that resurrection. I want evidence coming out of my life because this is real. I can live in the fact that the sacrifice was paid in full. I have been justified. And that same life-giving power that raised Jesus, that same life-giving power is going to raise me. So when he says, I want to know Christ in the power of resurrection, and then he says, and the fellowship of sharing in the suffering. Because like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead.
and I say, yay. To share in his suffering. I mean, Paul talks about that same topic in Romans 8, 17. If children, then heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. It kind of puts a whole new twist on suffering. That suffering is to make us, like Paul and James said, it's to make us stronger, to mature us, to get our eyes on the hope of Jesus himself. You'd be surprised at how our eyes shift off to the ways of this world and our own self. And Paul admits, he says, not that I have already obtained all this. No, it's a goal. I want to work at that my life, whether in good times or in tough times, that I can just live out the resurrection power. So I'm willing to go through whatever I have to go through to attain that. I desire it that bad. He said, not that I'm there yet. I mean, look what he admits. And we're talking about the Apostle Paul. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. But I press on to take hold to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I want to do God's will the way Jesus did God's will for me. I want to do God's will for Jesus. It's the least I can do. Because Jesus did God's will for me. Paul is saying, I want to take hold of that the way he took hold of it for me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. He's saying, I'm not perfect. I'm in the growing stage too. I want it so bad that I want to keep growing. I want to know more. I want to experience the power more. But one thing, he says, one thing I do do. One thing I do do. He says, one thing I do, and that is forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Do you hear him say, well done, the good and faithful servant. Thank you for your service. Paul says, that's what I want. And until I stand in front of him, 
I am going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to forget what is behind. My sins are gone. My past is gone. It's all under the blood. I'm not going to let my past tell me that I'm not worth it. Because I have a Savior that died for me. I am not going to go there anymore. I strain. Instead of going backward, I'm straining. And he used the word strain because that's not easy. I strain. I have to work hard. I strain to keep myself moving ahead because my natural human nature wants me to just sit and fail and wallow. I will not let this suffering do this and destroy me. I will let this suffering push me forward. I'm going to work hard that it moves me forward and it doesn't take me backward. How can you tell if the hardship that you're going through is something that Satan wants to use to get you to just sulk and be ineffective for God's kingdom? Or how do you know if this particular suffering, this particular hardship is of the Lord? And he's trying to move you forward for his kingdom through this. So how can you tell if this one hardship is of Satan or if it's of the Lord? If it's being used to discourage you or to encourage you? And my answer to you is it's up to you. It's whatever direction you choose to go because you have the choice and I hope that these words of Paul will resonate so loudly that he says, one thing I don't do, and I'm not going back there. I'm going to strain to move forward. I press on toward the goal to win the prize. And the prize is my Savior telling me, well done. You know, our son Chad wanted me to have the experience of knowing what it was like to run a marathon and cross the finish line. I was nearing 60 years old, and I didn't really think that that was something for an old lady to be starting now. But Chad said, I want you to know it's not just for your physical well-being, he says, but it's for your spiritual well-being. I want you to experience what the finish line is all about. And it's so, it's so relevant, it's so apropos, these two illustrations. Because life is a marathon. And there are moments in that marathon, I trained hard. And then the day of the marathon came, and it was a tough. I had to keep straining to move forward. And I had to press on toward the goal, the finish line, so that I could get the medal 
that said that I finished 26.2 miles in the allowed time. Oh, there were moments I got a Charlie horse and I had to drag my leg and I didn't think I was going to make it and I thought the big orange bus was going to pick me up because I was too slow and I wasn't going to make it anyway. But Chad was so right. I heard a man when I was almost done and I didn't know that I was quite almost there but I had a man on the sideline yell my name and say you wait till you turn the corner and I turned the corner and I saw the biggest letters that I've ever seen but that were so wonderful and it said finish line and I crossed that finish line, and there was a man standing there ready to put the medal over my head. And he had no idea. He had no idea. But his words to me were, well done. And I was so thrilled, and it will be an experience I'll never forget. And I'm, and I'm so grateful to Chad for pushing me to do that. But you know, when I was studying this, it's the same way. We have to, I know sometimes we feel like it's, it's, we're just not going to make it and we're, we're just going to, we're just going to fail. And then there's some momentum. You can't look back. I couldn't look back at the miles. I had to keep looking forward. The forward motion, that kept me going in the right direction because that's where the prize was. That was my goal. Do we work that hard? Do we train that hard? Do we work that hard? Do we press on? Do we strain? Is it worth it? I say, yes, he is worth it. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. He's saying in this letter, he's saying, come on, you Christians, you should be understanding this. You should know by now it is hard work. It is going to be worth the effort. And if on some point you think differently, that too, God will make clear to you. If you don't know it yet, you can count on the fact that he will make sure that it is clear to you. And he will do whatever it takes for you to know this and to experience the power of this. But he said, we're all in this. We're all at different points points. Because believe me, I did not finish first. But I want to tell you, I didn't finish last either. But every one of us, none of us crossed the finish line on the same second. We're all in different spiritual levels. But I just want to make sure that you know that what Paul is trying to say is, is that what we don't know yet, 
can never excuse us from failing to fulfill what we do know. I'm going to say that again. Because Paul is saying, yes, we're all on different levels. However, you can't give the excuse to do nothing because, well, I don't know all this. What we don't know can never excuse us from failing to fulfill what we do know. Every time you study, every time you sit down and take the time to study, you're going to know a little more, and it's going to change you a little bit more. So today, what I know, I don't know what I'm going to learn tomorrow, but what, I'm gonna, what I've learned today, I put into practice today. Tomorrow's a new day. I will study, and I will get to know more. I will learn more tomorrow. But what I learned tomorrow cannot be an excuse for not doing what I've learned today. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. I want to make sure that you know that Paul is not being cocky, like, oh, just follow me, just... Just, I'm the, I'm the greatest. No, he's saying that humbly. First Corinthians, which he wrote too, 11 verse 1. Imitate me just as I am imitating Christ. So that's why he's got the authority to say, do as I do. Join with me and the others that are living this out. Because we're following, we're imitating Christ. And he is the one we follow. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many, I can just see the tears well up in Paul's eyes and roll down his cheeks. Because he loves people and their souls and he doesn't want them to go to hell but he knows it's their choice he said with tears many live as enemies of Christ they're missing it they're lost they're doomed and we're just not talking about pagan people we're talking about people sitting in churches who are playing a religion game because they never really wanted to confess and repent and humbly see themselves the way they were. And they're missing it. And they're doomed. And they're sitting in that church every week thinking like Paul was before. Look at all what I'm doing for you, Christ. I'm doing my good work so that you'll be pleased with me and then save me. That's not how it works. Those aren't the terms. Paul says, all the things I thought that made me good in his eyes, I count for rubbish. They're missing it. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. 
and they don't even realize it. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly, oh no, I can hear Paul with his tears in his eyes coming down his face. But those of us who do believe our citizenship is not on this earth. It's in heaven. And we eagerly, we can't wait to see our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Wow. He can even bring all of our sins and our self and our addictions and our weaknesses, he can bring them under his control if we humble ourselves. And he can change our I can't to I can. And then he talks about heaven and our changed bodies that's going to look just like the body of Jesus, his glorious body. Oh, we haven't made. What a way to live. Heavenly Father, thank you for this lesson. May we go over it and over it. May we take this letter and may we see it as such joy, such hope. For not only then, but for now, we belong to you. And there isn't anyone or anything that can change that. And it's in our Savior's name who someday we will see face to face. Amen.